Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Last week, we got into a new sermon series about being an impactful church, and we were in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, and if we looked at that chapter 1, we found that the church at Thessalonica was quite a remarkable church, and this was a church made up of people who were clearly saved, and they were faithfully laboring um, for the Lord, and they were um, both evangelistic and mission-minded, and they were also anxiously awaiting the return for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in Paul's mind, and certainly in the mind of the Lord God, they were a remarkable church. Now, every church that belongs to the Lord can be a remarkable church if they will but strive to do so. So we know that we know that not every church will accomplish uh, the same results, nor will every church grow uh, to a large number. Some of the world's most successful churches today are made up of only a few members. And it is not the size of the work that matters so much as the church faithfulness to the ministries to which they have been called to by God. The question this morning that I have is, are they doing what Jesus told them to do and are they doing it in such a way that honors God? And is God honored? Perhaps a more important question for us this morning is whether our church here in Winton First Baptist is doing what God has called us to do and whether we are doing it in such a way that is God-honoring. So, assuming we are doing what God has told us to do and called us to do, we need to begin to consider what a wonderful God we serve. Amen? What a wonderful God we serve. And in a God-honoring ministry, that's what we want. That's what I want. And I hope that is what you want. If it is, how can you know? How do you know whether your ministry is bringing God honor or not. From the first verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can turn there now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. But saying that, I want to share with you this morning five criteria that your ministry must meet if it is going to bring God the honor that he deserves. So, first of all, if yours is a God-honoring ministry, then it is a ministry that is producing results. As Paul addressed the Thessalonians, he said, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. So when Paul and the others with him got to Thessalonica... They didn't just come to town thinking it would be a nice place to stay for a while. They didn't pick it for its wonderful architecture or its beautiful scenery or even its abundant shopping. Ladies, you might have. 
men. I know a lot of you would have too. I've, there's a lot of serial shoppers amongst the men in this church that I've found out. So you're not off the hook either. But they didn't choose it for those reasons. They got there on purpose with a purpose. They got there on purpose with a purpose. And that was to preach the gospel of Christ. The word entrance means the beginning of their gospel work. He said that the work was not in vain. In other words, it wasn't empty and it wasn't fruitless. It was a work that produced results. Every work done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be a work that produces results. It doesn't matter if you teach, it doesn't matter if you preach or pray or give or clean or mow or babysit. What Paul's saying here is your ministry ought to be a ministry that produces results. Does that mean that every ministry or every work for the Lord is going to be bringing people to the Lord? Yes. Yes, it does. But it's also a no. It's a yes and a no. But So let's first talk about the no. Not every work is going to result in the salvation of souls directly. In other words, mowing a lawn never won anybody to the Lord. Well, that's actually not true. I actually know of someone who has a story where they were mowing someone's lawn for free and they were able to have a conversation with that individual and they came to know the Lord. So I'm already disclaiming everything in my sermon now, okay? So just throw that out the window. But yeah, but there is opportunities that we have in our community, in our workplace, and and many other places that we are at that we have an opportunity to use those things to uh, further God's kingdom. Would you agree? We need to recognize those things. When Paul and the others preached the gospel, the account in Acts 17 says that a lot of folk believed. Most were Gentile people. They were men and women, some influential women, and even a few Jews. But listen, that's not the only result of their preaching. Another result was that the great multitude who rejected the message and refused to be saved heard the gospel, and had the opportunity to be saved. And although that's not the desired result, it is a result nonetheless. See, what we don't want as a result of our ministries is anyone ever being able to say at the end of their labors is that they never learn how to enter a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a shame that some teachers teach for weeks and months and some even years, yet they never share with their students how to be saved. One of the most important things any teacher, whether it is Sunday school, uh, growth groups, vacation Bible school, or any other kind of teacher can teach is how to be saved. If we fail to do that, then our ministries will not be all that God intends them to be. Imagine one of your students standing before the Lord one day and God questions why the boy or girl never accepted him as their savior, only to hear that the students say, well, my teacher never told me. My teacher never told me. But that's teachers. What about ministries that don't directly involve sharing the gospel? 
Can those ministries still produce results? Yes, they can. Because every single work that we do, no matter how seemingly insignificant they are, it gives testimony to our relationship with the Lord. The results God is looking for is for us to bring Him honor, not ourselves. So if you get there and you're stumbling upon your words, that's okay. God wants us to put out the effort. God will bless that conversation. God will bless that opportunity if you allow him to work through you. No matter what that ministry is, if it points people to God or it points people to people, what honors God is not that we won 20 people to the Lord, but that we honored him by trying, that we honored him by answering the call. That we honored him by trying. What honors him is not that we packed the house every Sunday. But that those who came and will come will honor the Lord with their faithfulness. When we serve and labor half-heartedly, that is a reflection of our relationship with God. When I do all that I can do to God's honor... And for his glory, then I'll do my very best in whatever it is, even if it's just being an usher or if it's just, again, like we talked about last week, having that smile on your face when someone's having a bad day. They know they can come to you and say, it was good to see you today. And that might be encouraging to them. We've talked a lot about being an encourager, and we've got a lot of great encouragers in this room. But that's what God is calling us to do. We are all to be encouragers. Numbers do not necessarily reflect results. Sometimes we think that if we are uh, producing results, that great numbers will be involved. But look at the ministries of Noah, of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and of other faithful men of God who prove otherwise. Sometimes the greatest results of a God-honoring ministry are simply what takes place in the heart of the minister. In some situations, it is the teacher or the deacon or the preacher or the dishwasher or anyone who is here. They encounter the greatest change. They will encounter the change, which is still a God-honoring result of a good ministry. Secondly, it is a good ministry and a God-honoring ministry that continues in opposition. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated. As you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now, you don't really need to dig around much in the book of Acts to find out that Paul knew what he was talking about when he mentioned opposition. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preached at Antioch and was persecuted and run out of town. In Acts 14, Luke records how the Jews persuaded the people of Iconium to stone Paul and then drag him out of the city where he was left for dead. When the disciples found him, he got up And you know what he did? He went right back into the city. He went right back there. In Acts 15, we find that Paul and Barnabas faced sharp contention in that their mission team split up. 
And then you move to chapter 16. And he and Silas were put in the Philippian jail. And then in chapter 17, he was chased out of Thessalonica. And the Thessalonians hated, hated him so much that they chased him all the way to Athens, some hundreds of miles away, wanting to kill him. This is the same Paul who now writes that in spite of all that opposition, he was bold to speak the gospel. He was bold to speak the gospel. How was Paul able to endure such hardship and keep on going? I think that from this passage in particular, and then just from Paul's life in general, we can find at least four reasons for that. First of all, he had confidence in God. He had confidence in God. Paul said that he was bold in his God. Had Paul had to rely on his own resources, he had to rely upon his own strength, on his own wisdom and power and might. He would have never finished the first missionary journey, but here we find him enduring trials and hardships most of us will never know. When he wrote back to the Philippian believers, he said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to be abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Over and over and over again in Paul's life and in his ministry, God gets the credit for his enduring all that he encountered during his ministry. And because Paul knew the source of his strength and his power, he kept on. He kept going. He stayed the course. No matter what. He relied upon God. He knew that through his own strength, through his own doing, if he did that, we probably wouldn't have half of the Bible here today, would we? But Paul knew he had confidence. He knew that his God would provide. And even if he didn't, he knew that was in the Lord's will and he accepted that. All through the scriptures, we read of men and women who endured opposition because of their confidence in God. The ministries you undertake are going to encounter opposition. If you haven't yet, then just stick around a little bit longer. It's coming. That's one thing that I've learned throughout all this, is that opposition is not a bad thing. Opposition can teach us some things. Opposition can put us in places that we didn't think were possible. God provides opposition so that we learn, so that we can take that situation, apply it to where it's needed, and let God do the rest. Let God sort those things out. If it is in your talent and your ability and in your resources, then you'll quit and settle for a pew or a couch. But when we rely upon God, we press forward. We rely upon that hope. We know that <laughs> no matter what we say and do makes no difference. 
But when we start listening to God and we start pursuing that relationship with him, he reveals these things to us and we can go, oh, yeah, of course. That's what I need to do. Paul said that his life was not his own. It had been bought with a price. He said in another place that he was crucified with Christ. He said that he had crucified himself to the world and the world to him. Paul had transferred ownership of his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that ownership came the privilege of saying what would or wouldn't happen in Paul's life. He knew that his life was not his to spend. God never has and never will make you do anything against your will. However, if you claim Jesus as your Savior, then you legally belong to him. But now it is up to you whether or not you will belong to him in practice. Let me give you an example of this. There was a young man who had a job, and it was for Walmart. He was in junior high school, and he was 16 years old. And he punched that clock, and he put his name on that badge, so technically he belonged to Walmart. They were paying him so long as he was punching that clock, right? And they had every right to tell him to go get the carts, or sweep the floor, or clean the bathrooms, stock the shelves, or whatever else that they told him to do. Why? Because he belonged to them. His time was not his own, at least during that shift. He was being bought with an hourly wage. However, after working for several weeks there, he discovered something that he had never known before, working on the farms he had been grown accustomed to. Lots of pretty girls came through this store, and some of them even worked in the store. Well, you can guess that he spent lots of time at Walmart doing what he did. He would talk to those girls, and he would talk to them in the break room. He talked to them in the various departments that he traveled to or worked in. He talked in the parking lots and anywhere else that he could without getting caught. And even though this was bought with company pay, he was abusing the ownership they had on him. He wanted all the benefits of being on the clock without rendering what they rightfully deserved from that individual. Now, think about how we treat the Lord. Think about how we treat the Lord. He shed his blood to purchase for our pardon. And we willfully accepted that payment for our sin and asked him to be our Savior and our Lord. We've been bought with a price. But are we so willing to render to him what he rightfully deserves from us? Or have the attractions of this light caught our attention so much that we are too busy pursuing our own goals to labor to the master? Paul continued in opposition because he remembered vividly that day that Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and changed his life forever. He remembered that he gave his life to Christ, the Christ he had helped to crucify, the Christ he had cursed and mocked, the Christ who loved him anyway despite those things. 
And there's no other institution on the face of this earth left to share that message than the Lord's churches. And there's no way for a church to share that message unless the members recognize that they are this church body in action. It's up to us. It's up to us. He also maintained his intimacy with Christ. How did Paul endure such opposition? Consider again something he said to the Philippians. He said, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, but then I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What is he saying here? I want to know him. That's what he's saying. I want to know him. If it means that I have to suffer just like he suffered to know him, then I'll suffer some more because I want to know him. Now you put two women in the street and one of them is my wife and the other is a stranger. Then tell me I have to risk my life to save one of them. Guess who I choose? Guess who you think I choose? Depending on the week, right? No. Who would you choose? I choose her. Why? Because I know her. And I love her. And would give my life to prove that love. It's the same way with Christ. It is the same way with Christ. Why did Paul put his life in harm's way to serve? Because he loved Christ. And because of the great love and relationship he maintained on a daily basis with his Lord. So why have people always struggled with making sacrifices for Christ? You figure it out. If we're going to have God-honoring ministries, they must be ministries that will continue in the face of opposition. We must be willing to press on when service calls for great service. We must be willing to press forward when we walk alone. We must be willing to be opposed even if it costs us our lives. How does God receive honor from people who quit and walk away or those who simply refuse to do anything that costs them a god honoring ministry will continue on no matter what may come its way and finally it is a ministry that is true to the gospel it has to be a ministry that is true to the gospel. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. 
not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. Verses 3 and 4. Now, up to this point, we have said that God-honoring ministries are those that produce results, either in the lives of those to whom we minister, or in ourselves, or even both. We have noted that God-honoring ministries continue in the face of opposition. And in verses 3 and 4, we find God-honoring ministries are true to the gospel message all the time. When we realize exactly what Paul is saying in these two short verses, maybe we'll get some insight into why ministries have produced the results they did. And we'll find another reason why he continued on. Listen to this. It is the responsibility and privilege of every child of God to be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our message. If our church is to have God-honoring ministries that are true to the gospel, then the people who labor in those ministries must be true themselves. I don't know what you do or what you teach in your classes half the time. I used to. I don't have that privilege as much anymore. But I will say this. I know that I can't police what happens in Bible studies or ladies' meetings or youth fellowship, but it is the responsibility of every member to be true to the gospel. Paul defined this for us to what that gospel message is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, when he says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I have delivered unto you the first of all that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said that he declared the gospel and how that Christ died for our sins. The message we teach and the message that we preach and counsel must contain the redemptive work of Christ. People do not need to know what they can do to help themselves so much as they need to know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. Amen? When we preach that Christ died for our sins, then we necessarily must teach the virgin birth and that the sinless life of the Savior is true, is accurate. It is something that we follow by. We necessarily must preach the cross of Calvary. We necessarily must share the truth that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We necessarily must teach people that because of their sin, they will die and go to hell unless they do something about that sin. The wages of sin is death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Jesus said, you will die in your sins. For if you don't believe that he is the Savior, you will die in your sins. 
We need to tell people all of that. But when we finally help them to see that they are lost, we can tell them that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord who died for our sins. And according to the scriptures, how do we know that Jesus died for our sins? The scriptures say so. The scriptures say so. So I'm not talking about the gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. I'm not talking about Paul's writings or Peter's or John's. Paul preached the saving death of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. They were all he had. Listen, Jesus and salvation are all through the Bible. Don't tell people what you think or what you believe or what brother you know, Stanley or, or Warren or anyone else said. That's not the goal. You tell them how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Not by what I think or what my opinion is. We go according to the scriptures. And we also know that he was buried. After Jesus was crucified, he was put in a borrowed tomb that had been prepared for a man just like you and me. It wasn't intended for him. This was no hoax. This was not some cruel prank. The man was dead, just like folks filling in the funeral homes. And those women who came to anoint his body came to finish the job. Those disciples gathered in the upper room weren't up there crying because Jesus went away on vacation. The Savior was dead and buried, and they thought it was over. They thought it was over. When Christ was buried, he buried with him your sins and the penalty that they carried. He finished the work on the cross, and that grave is an eternal reminder that they have been put away forever. Not temporarily, but forever. Your sin has no power over you, Accept the power you give it. Accept the power you give it. Those worries and anxieties and fears and doubts and troubles, guess what? They're dead. They don't exist. As Paul wrote the Roman letter, he was perplexed how we humans continue in sin in spite of the fact that we are dead to it. He said, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Knowing this, what our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. If we are going to preach or teach or share the gospel, it is not necessary to run down a list of scriptures every time. You, you may be just conversationally talking to someone and share with him that Christ died for our sins according to the Bible and he was buried. The pain and the hurt your friends suffer. They are suffering when they don't have to. They don't have to. They, they can't seem to break. You, you can tell them all these things. And still be powerless because of what Christ has done 
But we're not through. We're not through. For only he was crucified and buried, but he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Don't ever forget to share that part of the message. Because without the resurrection of the Savior, we don't have a Savior. Good people die every day. False Christs have come and gone, and their bones are still in the grave. Had Jesus only lived a good life, had Jesus only been crucified and buried, salvation would not be complete. That's why later in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, after Paul stated what the gospel is, he said, If there be no resurrection of the dead, then in Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and is your faith also in vain. If our ministries are to be God-honoring, then all of them, from the, the lowest of men, I don't even know how I even describe that, every ministry on this campus, even ministry that is not even a part of this campus, maybe you're a part of, this goes to them too. We need to be looking at this message. 1 Thessalonians 2.3. Make a note of what Paul says here. First he mentions their exhortation. The word exhortation simply means their call to the people to respond to the message. They were urging the people to accept what they were saying. And he said that exhortation was not of deceit. And deceit more or less means seductive. Uncleanness means that they had no impure motives. The guile is a, actually a fishing term that means to bait for entrapment or fraud. Think about it from a lost person's point of view in today's televangelistic society. When so often what they see on television are represented by the Robert Tiltons of the world, right? They preach a deceitful, impure, fraudulent gospel for personal gain. Certainly there's nothing wrong with wealth, but when it comes at the expense and well-being of those who respond to it is wicked and evil. Amen? When Paul walked into Thessalonica, he physically had nothing to gain and everything to lose. He didn't try to manipulate people into making some emotional response. He didn't try to cry them into heaven. He didn't try to woo them or convince them of how much better off they would be with a wealth and health of the gospel of prosperity. He didn't, he didn't throw them some lure to catch. He didn't he didn't do these things. When Paul came to town, he preached Jesus. He preached Jesus. He told those people and all the people to whom he would ever preach that Jesus died for them, was buried, and rose again to pay for their sins. And they could also have that victory with Christ. They could have eternal life in Christ. They could have the forgiveness of sins because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if they didn't want it, 
He wasn't going to resort to deception and manipulation to get to that. Was Paul interested in numbers? Only in the sense that it represented lost souls. Only in the sense that they represented the saved who wanted to follow the Lord Jesus in living holy and being unblameable. So yes, Paul was interested in numbers. He wanted to see thousands, hundreds of thousands of people saved and in church. And if that's a sin, then I am chief among those who commit it. That should be our goal. Not filling every pew just to fill it. It would be nice. But that's under false pretenses. We want people here serving. We want people here in a relationship to him. We don't want them here to put on a happy face. We want you to bring hurts. We want you to bring troubles because that is what God has called us to do. We are here to minister to you. Not just in the good, but also the bad. I have bad days. We all do. But it's nice to know that I can come somewhere knowing and having that confidence in God knowing that he's put you in my life to help with that, if I allow it. Believe me, there's days where I want to just say, I'm fine, I'm good. I can put on that happy face like a lot of pastors do, but there are times I struggle. And I know there are times that you struggle. But God provides an opportunity for us here so we can get each other right, so the body of Christ is working properly so that we can go out into the field and do some damage. That's what we're called to do. That's what having a good ministry on this campus means. It means being sold out. It means being confident in those things. It means being ready and anxious and excited to do the work of God. Look at verse 4 again and notice two very interesting words. They are the words that are allowed and try. What makes them so interesting here is that they are the same word. Not that you really want to know, but the word dokimadzo, and it means to test and to prove and to examine and scrutinize. And it means to put to the test, to prove something worthy. You might think of what you do when you go to make some major purchase, when you uh, go get a new car or a truck. You test it, don't you? You prove its worth. You drive it. You scrutinize all the details. You put it to the test. And you will either find it worthy or you won't. Well, that's exactly what God did with Paul and Timothy and Silas. But here's the kicker. It's what he's done with all of us. It is what he has done with all of us. When God told his church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he was putting his faith in the members of that church and every true church to follow. Paul says that they were put in trust with the gospel. The word trust here is the same word that you have in John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believe. It is the same word found 
and many other verses. And it means to put your faith in. So think about it for a second. God took his son, his only son Jesus, and put him on that cross to pay for the sins of every man. Woman, boy, girl, who would ever live. And he wrapped that message up in the gospel. And then he handed it to the very people he came to save and to share it with the rest. So Paul says, even so we speak, he says, look, God has found in me something to believe in. He has placed his faith and trust in my ability to share the most important message ever known to man. He says, so I share. I speak. That's why he could say that he didn't speak it to please men, but God who tries and tests and proves our hearts. So let me ask you something this morning. Are you being true to the gospel? Do you realize that God has handed you the torch, so to speak? God has tested you and found in you something worthy of sharing the message of his son so that others may know him. He's not asking you to twist people's arms or trick them into being saved. It's not important whether you ever get anyone saved or not really. You see, God will take care of that. God will take care of that. What he really wants from us is faithfulness in sharing. Faithfulness in sharing the message with which he has entrusted us with. So what do we do? We must speak it. We must share it, especially with those who need it. The temptation we always have is the same as when Paul was in his heyday. He says it in verse 5, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. So, evidently, flattery and deceit have always existed when presenting the gospel. We don't have to butter up people or try to make them something they're not. People need to hear the exact truth. And that truth is, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. That without Christ, they'll go to hell and so forth. These are the things we most often leave off to try to make people feel better about the situation. But what we do by doing that is keeping them lost. We're not presenting the whole truth. Therefore, they're still lost. The word cloak is interesting as well because it means that you put something forth to hide the true state of things. And Paul testified that he was not guilty of resorting to such low means to preach the gospel. And we may never either. When he was the pastor of the Methodist Church in Scarborough, William Sangster had an eccentric member who tried to be a zealous Christian. And unfortunately, the man was mentally deficient and usually did the wrong thing. While working as a barber, the man lathered up a customer for a shave, came at him with a poisoned razor, and asked, Are you prepared to meet your God? The frightened man fled with the lather on his face. At least he tried. Most studies show that 98% of Christians are not sharing their faith. 
seminary professors are right. That we live in a world that is searching for answers. That Christians are stuttering to get the words out. Let us determine to know the gospel. Let us determine and be determined to know the gospel. Let us believe deep in our hearts that without it, people will miss out on Christ and the blessings of salvation. And may we determine to share that message in whatever forms we are able to use without compromising, without resorting to deceit, to flattery, or any other means that will not be true to the precious, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Dave, come and lead us in our benediction, please. Stand together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you so much for the moving in your church. Thank you, Lord, that you come, um, you come willingly, even though sometimes as Christians we are not. But you meet us anyway, and you love us, and you take care of us. Lord, I am so blessed to be a part of this church and the inner workings of its ministries. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we are God-honoring church, that we are a church that does the things that you have called us to do. Thank you for the leaders that you have sent. Thank you for the people that you have sent. And Lord, we are excited to get, get doing the work that you've called us to do. Thank you again for our time together. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.